there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. And today I'm talking to someone who I've admired for a very long time, filmmaker Greg Araki. His movies include Nowhere, Totally Fucked Up, The Living End. But the reason we're talking today is there is a re-release of his 1994 movie, The Doom Generation, which stars James Duvall, Rose McGowan, and Jonathan Sheck. I remember seeing it at the time. I interviewed all of those actors. I watched the new remixed and remastered version that they sent me and it just was like this rush of nostalgia but also like knocked out by the audacity of it and the filmmaking and the performances and the beauty and Jonathan Sheck's mouth I mean oh my gosh that's a lot there's a lot so I was so excited to talk to Greg about getting this movie out there that has been very hard to find maybe there was a DVD but it wasn't a great version there was never a blu-ray um, it's not on streaming so the dupe generation is coming back and Greg is here to talk about it but before we get to that I want to remind you that this podcast Dennis anyone is brought to you by crest no it's not it's not. It's not brought to you by any products. I just made that up. Um, it's brought to you by me. I do it. And uh, if you want to support it, there are two ways you can do that. You can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. I always appreciate that. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's part of a group of shows that I'm part of. And uh, you can subscribe for, for uh, a monthly fee. And you get my show two days early. And you get all these other great shows uh, like the Derek and Romero main show and the Adam Sank show and Perfect Date with Tom Goss, all these great shows, and you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. All right, that's enough for the plugs. Here's the interview with Greg Araki. Joining me now from Los Angeles via Zoom, it's filmmaker Greg Araki. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hello, podcast world. I'm so excited to talk to you about this re-release of Doom Generation, but first I want to see, do you remember we were on a trip together? Do you remember this? Yes, I remember. It was Eric Cop's 40th birthday party. Yes. In, was it Maui or Honol- Maui, Honolulu? Right? Oh, no, it was, Honolulu. it was Honolulu. I remember, I remember palm trees and beaches and all that shit. Yeah, that was fucking... And remember Sandra Bullock was on the beach? She was. And I remember just kind of saying hi to her. Yeah. yeah. I forgot about no, Sandra Bullock. Thing. Don't you remember? It was like... Sandra Bullock was there. And was it Josh Harnett or something? Do you remember this part? Maybe. Somebody, I don't know if it's Josh Harnett's somebody like that. Yeah. Like that um he was also there because it was like a it was like a fancy schmancy place we were staying yeah. at. And um somebody asked him to take a picture and then he thought it was like a fan asking for a picture. And again, maybe this isn't Josh Harnett, so not to insult Josh Harnett, but the fan actually the person just wanted to take a picture of them like on the beach right like, just to you to be the camera person <laughs> yeah. yeah i also do, do you remember we went and saw prince do you remember that of course i did i amy, mean amy stevens was there uh, the the legendary amy stevens and got us into the that prince show that, that like was, and what a treat that was man i was knocked out of it and we also i don't know if you went to this part but i remember seeing honey with jessica alba uh, the choreographer movie where she's like, get me honey Daniels. And she's the hot choreographer. I love that stuff. Anyway. I don't think I, don't think I saw that. I missed that yeah, part. You might've stayed, you, you might've stayed at the luxury hotel and skipped the honey Daniels. But here's what struck me about that trip. Cause I had seen um, probably all your movies and was a fan and your movies are edgy and dark and you were so, you're so sweet and nice oh, and fun. Dang. Like, do you get that a lot? Do people, 
think that you're not like your I movies? Get, Is there a disconnect? I get that people expect me to be a certain way because of my movies. Right. And that I'm just, you know, they think I'm just like this kind of, you know, whatever, S&M, like, dungeon, punk right. rock, like, drug-taking guy. And I'm just like a super ordinary born person. So it's, people are always <laughs> either relieved or somewhat disappointed by that. Right. And a sweetheart was my is my uh, memory of it. Just a super sweetheart. All that, all that sweet. Even though people in your movies, like the Doom Generation, say things like, um, I, I wrote a bunch of lines down. Let's see. Uh, Jism breath, anus face, uh, um, blow it out your crusty rectum. And my favorite is eat my fuck. I think eat my fuck eat is my, my favorite. Fuck. Eat my fuck is a classic. It's really <laughs> funny because um, when we screened at Sundance um, for the, when the restoration screened at Sundance year, Jimmy Duvall, uh, Jimmy was there and he's had done a film with Keith Morris from Circle Jerks and Black Flag, and he came to the screening, and I was just like, oh, my God, fucking, like, I came, like, Keith Morris, he, like, it, it, I said, I, you don't understand, like, when I was in college as an undergraduate, and so, like, punk rock, um, I used to watch The Decline of Western Civilization, the Penelope Spheres documentary about the germs and X right. and Circle Jerks, all that shit. Like, every day. I mean, me and my friends would watch it every day, watch the fucking list of the soundtrack every day. Like, we were, it was like a Bible to us. And, and he's like, no way. And the line, eat my fuck, comes from that movie. Like, oh. it's like, yeah. There's. I thought it was something that one of the punk kids in the documentary says, but but Keith Morris is like, no, no, no. That's someone in the band Fear says that in, like, a concert, like, concert footage. Like, what does eat my fuck mean? And... um. Because some, there's a, someone in the crowd going, eat my fuck. And so, uh, yeah, it was just a punk rock, an, an, an homage, punk rock homage to the decline of Western civilization. Right, with a rich history. It's a line with a rich history. Some of my other favorites, um, don't be a corn nut. That's fucking great. Um, and then there's things that are proud, kind of more profound. Life is a, a chewy fuck sandwich. Did I miss a word? Is that right? Chewy shit sandwich. Chewy six shit sandwich. I knew I... I... Life is a chewy shit sandwich. Yeah. And and also, I feel like this city is sucking away my soul. Um, and life is lonely, boring, and dumb. So, I think... <laughs> um, so, we're talking about the Doom Generation. There's a restoration. I didn't realize it had been so hard to see this movie for the yeah. past... What's, what's been going on? Was there a DVD? Like, so... why haven't people seen it? That's what's so fucking cool about this restoration is... Because we're doing Nowhere this year as well. And both movies have kind of um, disappeared in the sense that, you know, they have this sort of super devoted cult following. But the movies have not been available. They're not available streaming. Doom Generation is on DVD, but not on Blu-ray. Nowhere is not even available on DVD. It's VHS only. And so these movies sort of lived on in this weird way but they're not really accessible anymore and so the idea that a whole new audience a whole new generation you know everybody's going to be able to see them and you know because of spend releasing and um that uh we have the time and the money to like go back and remaster them and right. um, you know the original versions of these movies are not uh 
really technically up to snuff. Sure. They, um, you know, so we were able to remaster it, recolor time it, um, re- remix the sound so you can actually hear all the music and stuff. The generation has such a fantastic soundtrack and now you can actually hear all the songs. So, um, it was such a great opportunity to, to update the movies for the whole next generation. And I'm so excited that these new versions will just make all the old versions go away forever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Happy with the old versions. Technically, like they don't look right and they don't sound right. And, and this new version is uh, definitely um, a huge improvement over the old version. So, well, the, and the, the it's link theaters too. So, and it's actually going to be in more cities, I think, than the original movie ever was. So, um, yeah, it's going to be it's amazing that that people can see Doom, Gen- Doom Generation in a theater now. That's super cool. Um, and I, I, what they sent me to to watch was beautiful. It looked beautiful. What struck you when you went back and looked at the movie? The main thing about the remaster is, um. The original DVD of Doom Generation, it's not even letterboxed. It's literally just like a pan and scan. It's not a great, like, like that's why I'm shocked that the movies survived all this time and that people still talk about it. But when I, we, we did the remaster, I was so struck by how beautiful it is. It's just gorgeous. I mean, the, the cinematographer Jim Feely and the production designer, the late, great Therese DePrez, did such an amazing job on this low-budget indie movie where we had no money, no time, but they really created something that's such a beautiful work of art. And, um, like, Rose and Jim and Jonathan, they're at their their face their faces <laughs> they're they're just at the peak of their beauty. Like, it's like... And so, to watch the movie today, I was really sort of just stunned by how gorgeous it was. First of all, I wrote down the best hair movie I can think of. Like, everybody's hair. Jonathan and Jimmy's and Rose's hair is amazing. Hats off to Jason Rayle, my hair makeup guy from from the 90s that did all that that stuff. I mean, I used... Yeah, he... And he did everybody. Like, I was still like... When I saw Jimmy Sundance Mall, your hair is blacker in the movie. So, yeah, they... If, and I remember why I did it because I wanted Jimmy and Jonathan to look different. Yeah. So um, Jimmy's hair is like more black than it is naturally, and um, and Jonathan's hair has more like highlights in it. It has yeah. kind of golden highlights in it, so they don't look too similar. And um, Rose's hair, you know, Rose when we, you know, Rose is a natural blonde, and yeah. so um, you know, we dyed it, and you know. I remember Jason being so thrilled about the color of Rose's hair is, it looks like black, dark brown, yeah. but it's weird highlights in it. And it's, it, when you see it in the sunlight, it has like a, a real like texture to it and it's different colors. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it just, but he did an amazing job and everybody looks fucking phenomenal. Well, I interviewed all three of those actors around the time of this movie. Some of them more than once. Really? Yeah, for movie line and detour, <laughs> cool. like all of them. And Jonathan, I, awesome. I did a few times. Jimmy, I think I did. And I hung out with them a bit around the same time. And so when I watch this movie, I'm not just seeing the movie. I'm thinking, oh, my God, the 90s. Like, and people, <laughs> other people I knew and interviewed, Margaret Cho, Parker Posey, like, it did a mind trip on me. And I was like, 
was this a couple of years ago or was this 30 years ago? Does it seem like a long time to you or did it feel like it just went by like that? It went by like that and it's going faster and faster. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like the older we get, the faster time goes. I just can't believe that it was, you know, almost three years ago. And, you know, most of us are still here and that's, that's what we're grateful for. But yeah, it's just like, like Parker and Margaret and everybody in that movie. It's just well, amazing. you have these random cameos and I'm like, wait, is that Peter Brady and Julie from the Love Boat? So you have Christopher Knight, you have Lauren Tews, you have Perry Farrell, Perry Farrell Amanda Heidi Burst, Heidi Fleiss. Heidi Fleiss, in, in a Heidi Fleiss-like bathrobe. Doing, um, just yeah. deadpan, deadpan Heidi. She's not overacting. She's she's <laughs> keeping it. She's making you come to her. Making it real, yeah. How do you it, get those cameos? It did, was, did, well, it was one thing about the movie, this movie and Nowhere Both. I remember telling casting directors, um, I wanted all those supporting parts, not necessarily to be like a cheesy famous celebrity cameo, but I wanted it. The world of the, both those movies is very kind of surreal and dreamlike. And it's re, related to my interest in, you know, my, the influence obviously of like David Lynch and, you know, his whole thing of like dreams and cinema being kind of melded together. And, right. and so the world of these movies is very sort of dreamlike. And yes. I wanted those cameos to be like, when you're having this dream and people from movies and TV or celebrities or whatever, sports people, whatever, they come into your dreams. You know what I mean? So the idea that these familiar faces are showing up at the quickie mart or showing up at the liquor store. And so that's kind of part of the, the design of the, of the, you know, the movie's universe. Were they quick yeses? Were people into it? Were they like, who is this guy? Yeah, what is this I mean, movie? Well, they most of them were yeah I, the ones who were there are all yeses yeah. though but yeah there's a lot that said no I'm sure it's just like that's what the casting director um, you know dealt with but you know even in like the the last scene where the sort of Nazis show up the two of the um, the the lead guys played by Dewey Weber who's like a young actor that um, I knew from that time. Who was also in but, Showgirls, by the way. I was like, who is that guy? And I'm like, he's the guy in the truck at the beginning of Showgirls. Yes. I, fuck, I don't, I don't remember that. I'll have to go watch Showgirls. Now. Go watch but it. The, he's the guy the at the two, beginning. The two, do you recognize the two other guys? No. Are they porny? They're both, they're both gay porn actors. Oh, from that who movie. are they? That's right up my um, alley. Rex Chandler and yep. Zach Spears. There it is. Yeah, yeah, I love it. They they go by the real names. They didn't yeah. use the names for the movie, but um, but yeah. So it was cool because it was like everybody. It just it gives the movie this whole other level of yeah. Um, I want to I want to talk about each of your three leads and some of the things I observed about them. James Duvall is just like a puppy in this movie. He's like a little puppy. Like <laughs> it's it's so charming, right? Uh huh. Yeah, no, I mean, the idea of this movie is that the Jordan character is, like, the innocent. You know what I mean? Like, yes. he's the innocent. So when he, you know, bad things happen to him, so it's sort of like, it's like the loss of innocence, you know, like he's too kind of pure right. to live in this world. And so, um, and I wrote that part for for Jimmy after meeting him on Totally Fucked Up. And it was really like, Jimmy himself is, 
kind of like that even today when now that he's like in his 40s and he's still very kind of sweet kids um but uh so i wrote that part specifically with him in mind it was very much loosely based on his character but you know obviously still a character yeah um jonathan struck me because Back in the day, I had interviewed him like three times. I thought he was the sexiest guy in movies. I could not get enough of him. And I thought, I I bet I'll watch this and I'll have a little distance like, okay, that was nice. No, he still got it. He's still amazing. I would watch a movie called Jonathan Sheck's Mouth. I would watch that movie. I'd watch the shit out of that movie. But here's what struck me about his performance. He's all in. Sometimes actors, when they have to play super sexual stuff or especially gay stuff, they're they're holding back a little like i'm not really into this like they're kind of winking at the audience a little yeah and that's what i i hate those no they're the worst and we it's a subtle thing but we know it when we see it right oh yeah he is not that he is the opposite of that he's gonna do everything he's talking about doing and you know in those days um yeah john was just this young actor and um, studied with Roy London and he was just very, very serious actor and very like method. And um, he kind of just lived that part. And he was very like him and Jimmy were like this on the set because it was very much like, you know, he told me, he's all, yeah, he's in love with that guy. Right. And so, you know, it, like Jimmy and Jonathan, and I don't they fucking, but they were very tight. Like they just had a very tight relationship because Jonathan, was in, you know, so in that character and so into, um, you know, just so fascinated by exploring, um, that side of himself. And, um, you know, I learned years later, just recently that, you know, he had been sort of sexually assaulted on the set of the Sparrow right, right before making this movie. And I said, Oh my God, I hope the doom generation didn't traumatize you because of that, because, um, it, you know, it was, you know, doom generation goes to some kind of dark and crazy places. So no, 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 it was actually kind of therapeutic for me, but, um, but yeah, so he, he was absolute. That's so well observed because he was absolutely all in. All in. You could see it in his eyes. Like he was, and he wasn't just there like to be adored. He had desire. He was in it. Like there was something intoxicating about it. The famous or infamous scene where there's a bodily fluid involved. Yes. That was... It's on my my, list. It's on my list, Greg. Yeah. My recollection, again, my memory's getting hazy. My recollection... That's not in the script. And my recollection of it is is that the special effects guy mixed the stuff up. Okay, here's the stuff. It's edible. You know, so don't worry. It's not poison or something. So if you, like, eat it or something. So... The, I think it was Jonathan's idea to do that. Right. And I remember Andrew Sperling, this part I remember, Andrew Sperling, you know. The producer. Yeah. The producer, the famous Andrew Sperling. And um, I said, should we have him do that? You know, and Andrew, it's yes. Oh, she was all about it. <laughs> she was all in. She was right. also all in. Like, let's be punk rock. Let's go there. And so it's like, okay. But I think that was J- Jonathan's, Jonathan's idea. idea. He, he licks his own jizz off his hand. and But he doesn't just dab it. He's... Yeah, no, it's like... He, he makes a meal out of it. He's fully in character. Yeah. It's, and it's such a, like, like, electrifying moment in the movie. And yeah. so that's... 
Uh, talk to me about Rose McGowan. What, what was it like working with her and how did she come to be in the movie? Rose literally was just a baby. I think she was like 18, 19. They were all kids. Jonathan was a little bit older, I think about 22, 23. But she had literally done nothing before this movie. I mean, she was an extra in Encino Man or something. So this was her first real acting role. Right. I just remember her being um, just, she's one of those actors that's just, um, a create, you know, like a creation. Like I, my image of her, like one of the first days of shooting was just like sitting on the curb, holding a cup of coffee with like a fur hat. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like this little movie star. You know what I mean, just out, just out of the womb, just born a movie star. Right. And so, you know, and obviously the camera just fucking adored her. You know right. what I mean? And so, um, she was just like a real, uh, yeah, she's, really like fun to work with and just like we had just a kind of crazy and amazing the shoot was very hard yeah you know it was because it was when it was cold it was you know and that whole movie takes place a fucking night and then yeah. there night shoot but night shoots are not fun i remember when we were shooting the warehouse scene it was just so dirty and it the, the shoot was and the the like literally second day of production was a Northridge earthquake. I mean, just like one thing after another, right. after another. So it was a very tough movie to shoot. And, um, but you know, I look back on it now with just like such fondness and affection. This is just kind of, and now, it was kind of a magical time for me. I love that. I love to hear that. Um, I saw, I follow Jonathan on Instagram and he's very active by the way. Um, I know yeah. he's into it. Uh, and I saw the footage of you guys at Sundance, you and Jimmy and Jonathan together. What was it oh, like? I, I, I haven't seen this footage, so it's like you have some, you've seen something that I haven't seen. Yeah, well, he, he, it was just little moments of like, I can't believe we're here. It was just sweet to see you guys all yeah. together. What was it I, like? It was completely amazing. Like it was, I mean, it was literally the scene of the crime. It's where we premiered in the Egyptian theater. Almost, you know, to the day, <laughs> wow. like 20 years ago, the same theater and, and, um, you know, just being back there with, with Jimmy and Jonathan and, and Andrea and, you know, just, and it was, and seeing the movie in a theater with an audience was just so cool and amazing. You know, it's just like, it's such a, audience movie and so it's such a movie that's meant to be seen in a theater yeah the ability to do that again was just incredible um have you been in touch with rose do you do you still talk to her uh we had the she said some kind of weird and untrue hurtful things about me and the in the press and uh yeah so we're not really in touch all right i got that i uh i i i did not know that um there's a subtitle at the beginning of the movie, a heterosexual movie. Where does that come from? <laughs> it's actually kind of in a weird way, like the origin of the movie is that I had done um, Living In and Totally Fucked Up. And one of the producers of that, uh, Living In, is Jim Stark, this New York producer. Um, right. He say that he's all, you know, you make these gay movies that are too punk rock for gay people, you know, it's just like gay people don't like them because they're, you know, and it was true, like, Living In was a really polarizing movie. It obviously had its intense, like, passionate fans, but also, like, 
equally intense like haters i was disturbed by it but i i was glad i saw it but i remember like leaving i remember where i saw it i remember leaving there and like the gun in the mouth and all of it and like not knowing what to make of it probably the reaction you want from people but yeah Yeah, but but there are gays there are members of the gay community that literally wanted to like string me up and (laughs) it was a very intense I, i heard stories about fights breaking out in gay bars over there. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> there was a lot of passion and uh, provocation going on. And so he said, you know, you make these gay movies that are too punk rock for gay people. You know, if you make a heterosexual movie, I'll produce it for you and I'll get you a real budget. And so, you know, the sort of punk rock Brad in me was like, okay, I'll make you a heterosexual movie. So that's why I called it a heterosexual movie by right. Gregor Rocky. It's purposely like so homoerotic. Right. It's like it's like the queerest heterosexual movie ever made. It ha- it does have Amy Blue and it has this sort of you know like a heterosexual veneer to it. But I always thought of it being sort of like a Trojan horse in the sense of a yeah. It's such a it's such an intensely queer movie that people who wouldn't go see like a openly queer movie right would see it and be a little bit like oh what is it yeah boy (laughs) xavier is sure looking at him for a long time very intensely there's definitely a very like like intentionally exaggerated homework subtext going on that um i think people have told me through the years that the movie has made them gay (laughs) (laughs) that's good I think that is a as a huge compliment. That's so. a huge compliment. When you were making it, did people feel like they were being um, rebellious, or was was that was that punk rock spirit? Did you feel it on the set? The actors were like, "Yeah, yeah." The script was very, you know. It's obviously, you know, when you have a script like the Doom Generation, there's so many people that were like whole like horrified by right. the script. There's that like I would never do. Right. <laughs> you know, and so, but the people that were there. You know, they read the script and they got it. They were in, you know, so they were, they want, they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted, you know, maybe they were deep down a little bit scared about it, but, you know, also at that time I was so, I mean, it was my fifth movie and, you know, my first one with a budget, but nevertheless, I was very confident and very sure of myself as a, young filmmaker artist you know what i mean like it had a very clear right you you were feeling yourself and you were like this is what i want to put out there yeah so there was never any like oh i don't know if it is like i'm all this movie's gonna fucking like blow people's minds (laughs) i don't know if you can relate to this i when the 90s is when my journalism career sort of took took off and i did quite a lot of work and i had a lot going on and i look back and i'm like i did a lot of shit in the 90s do you have that feeling when you look at your filmography? Like, and not just the '90s. Like, in my whole life, it's just like Jesus. There's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I remember talking to a friend of mine uh, a while ago. Going, if I could talk to the 20 year old version of myself, right? I could never dream of like the career I've had and the movies I've made and the things I've seen and the places I've been, it like, it's beyond imagine. It would be beyond my 20 year old imagination because it was really not even, you know, when I went to film school back in the late seventies or the eighties, it was really like, 
And it, it just didn't even really exist. There was certainly never any like queer punk filmmaker, filmmaker, you know, like playing these international festivals and, you know, sort of doing what I've been able to do in the, you know, whatever, 30, 35 years I've been making movies. So yeah. pretty, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's been, it's been an amazing ride. I'm nothing but grateful for it. I love hearing that because I think it would be possible to do the kind of work you've done for as long as you've done and, and, and be frustrated. Like I didn't get my due or I didn't get my thing. Did you ever have those moments where you, you felt like you're pushing against a wall or were you always like, you know what, this is the dream. I'm living the dream. Yeah, yeah I totally feel like I'm living the dream. I mean, like I said, I'm living kind of beyond the dream. And then the other thing is that, you know, it, it, it all comes from like punk rock music and new wave music and the culture that I come from, yeah, you know, because the artists that I love, the artists that have been the hugest inspirations to me, um, you know, like Cocteau Twins or, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, Slow Dive or, or what, you know, whatever it is, X, Talking Heads, or all these, all these bands and all these people that were so seminal in terms of my growing up and in terms of when I was sort of coming of age as an artist, most all of them never had real commercial success. Right. You know, I mean, never were top 40. They were never as successful as whatever the Beatles or what, right. what had. Um, and so I didn't, I've never cared about that. It's always been about just being true to your own vision and true to your own self. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to, you know, make the movies I've made and say the things I've said and, you know, still here to, still here to talk about it. <laughs> I love it. Still doing it. Um, there's a lot of blood in this movie. What's the secret to good screen blood? And it looks great in the restoration. Talk to me about blood. Such great blood. It's like, I don't know, it's my effects guy, I guess. I don't I remember the, the kid who did, we had two people doing the effects at the end, but a lot, most of the effects are done by this, Guy named Chris Mabley, who was a student of mine, right on at UCSB when I taught an indie film class. It's also where I met Andrea and Rogo Bella from Totally Fucked Up, and um, and he was an ex student and was a big, big into like horror movie effects and special makeup and all that stuff. And so he did a lot of it. Like he has, like he did the jizz on Jonathan's hand. He did the blood. He did the head to floor. Through the quickie mart, like he did, like all that stuff. And hats off to him. But hats yeah, off to it, him. You know, blood is complicated. I mean, as a director, I'm not super involved in like yeah. every volume, but they just sort of, there's different ones for different, like some squirts better, some splatters better. Yeah, there's <laughs> so, secrets. There's, there's a whole thing, there's yeah. a whole school that those people yeah. go to. So that I don't really know that much about it. You let them do their thing. When I watched the movie and I was thinking about the theme, it was sort of like I got this sort of like, Boy, young people are kind of fucked in this world, right? And and but and then and then I look back and I'm like, the '90s was actually pretty sweet. We hadn't had 9/11, we hadn't had Trumpism, we had like it was. We didn't know how good we had it when this oh, movie God. came out. What it, it, was, it felt apocalyptic then, you know what I mean? Yeah, like and I'm like, it's so much but worse it, now. But yeah, it's like utopia compared to now. You know what I mean? It's like I, I did this interview before Sundance, and it just sort of like, you know, sadly. But like a lot of the themes of the movie are more relevant today than they were in 1995. You know what I mean? The idea that, um, you know, 
one of the things about the movie, like the violence in the movie, is that, you know, being queer in the 90s, you really felt that fear and that sense of danger. You know, it's like a dangerous place to be. Right. And, and the threat of impending violence was real. And, um, you, th- you know, for a while in the Obama years, maybe it felt like it was getting a little bit better. But after fucking 2016 on, it's just so much worse. And what's happening right now with, with transgender people and just the whole like just parade of fucking hate going on and the fucking Nazis. It's just, it's nuts. It's a super crazy and scary time. And, you know, sadly that's sort of the theme of the movie is these, these kids kind of, you know, on the run in this chaotic and just insane America that we live in. Yeah, it's it struck me watching it for sure. Um, Jonathan's character has the coolest belt buckle I think I've ever seen in real life or in a movie. Please tell tell me you still have it. Did you keep it? What happened to it? It exists somewhere. I don't personally have it, but it's somebody. Does Jonathan have it? It does because you know that scene was written for that belt buckle, right? Because it's a belt buckle that changes. Yeah, uh, it's a buck, yeah. the bucking Broncos. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I think a friend of mine had it, and I said I'm going to write a scene for that. I mean, the movie is so much of that. It's so much um, like a diary almost of that. It's like a scrapbook of yeah. my life in 1993, right. 94 when I wrote it. It would be like things, um, you know, I, I used to keep notebooks, and, and you know, I jot things down, and like the, a lot of the dialogue is like like life is a chewy shit sandwich like i would write things like that right. <laughs> in an old book and then it would pop up in the dialogue and the belt buckle is something i'm going to write a scene for that the end scene in the movie was actually based on something that really happened in my hometown and so i was like i'm going to put that in a movie yeah i mean like there's so many things in the movie that were just everything in the movie basically is something that's a personal recollection or a personal like a fragment of my life but that that point so that really horrifying thing that happens at the, at the end of the movie was something that was based in reality yeah it actually happened wow. i mean a version of it happened sure yeah yeah i also think your movie has some of the most disgusting food we've ever seen on camera those hot dogs i mean would, yeah. would you would you go to props and go make it grosser we need that to oh, be yeah. grosser oh yeah no it's a, but you know product uh, it's Therese again. She got that. She got she, it right away. <laughs> she, oh, yeah, no, she knew. Like she, it was her. I wouldn't have to tell her like make it gross, or she'd just make it gross. I mean, I remember specifically the nachos. She added food coloring to the cheese to make the cheese even more. Gross. <laughs> it's got a pop. It's got a pop. It's funny because it's it's pretty colors, but when it's food, it's gross for some reason. Our brains don't like that. Um, You've uh, you've done a lot of TV recently, directing shows like Thirteen Reasons Why and uh, now Apocalypse, American Gigolo, Dahmer. What's that been like? Uh, well, now Apocalypse is different because now Apocalypse was my that own was show. yours, yeah. And it was literally my all-time ultimate dream. Like since I did the film, when I did Nowhere, Nowhere was actually written as sort of as a TV pilot because that was right around the time of Twin Peaks, right? And I was so inspired by that phenomenon and the idea that you could make like this crazy sort of visionary TV and just beam it out, out to people. So nowhere was actually written with TV in mind, but so ever since nowhere, I wanted to do my own kind of crazy show. So now apocalypse was a 
like literally however many 20 years later the realization of that dream for me of being able to make this sort of insane like Greg Rocky universe kind of come to life for 10 episodes love it but but when I do um when I do episodic TV it's different because it's very much the showrunners sort of vision yeah. so it's sort of there to steer your episode and like kind of make a little mini movie yeah but it's not creatively like your responsibility and I find it actually fun in the sense that it's um it's you get to sort of flex your muscles a little bit and learn new tricks. And I remember on American Gigolo, we got to shoot with this thing called a Russian arm, or they, I guess, now called a U arm. It's a thing that they use in like Fast and Furious to like do car chases and right stuff. Right on, yeah. And there is one for it's like a follow car with a camera on it on a crane, and you can do all these crazy moves with it. So you get to work with fun, like tools and learn new tricks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's fun to do episodic. Uh, for those reasons, and you don't have to have any of like the creative weight of it all. You just sort of turn your cut in and walk away, and that's and that's it. That's so it. It, it definitely helps your. Um, it's it really helps your filmmaking a bit. It, you're like a much better filmmaker after doing a few shows because yeah. you learned so many tricks and so many new things. So when every movie. Can- Every movie you make, you get, you're a better director. So, you know, the more you do, the more. And when you make movies, a lot of times they come every few years. You don't get to make as many. Right. You can kind of get a crash course taste of it, and then you get to kind of move on. Um, yeah, you just walk away. Like, yeah. you literally. Is there a dream project that you still want to do? Is there something you're like, oh, I got to make that one? I've made pretty – I mean, I think that <laughs> – I've been so lucky. I've done, uh, you know, it's like, I, yeah, now Pockets was really a dream for me and it turned out so amazing and the experience of doing it was so amazing. That's something I've always wanted to do. Uh, when I, when Kaboom premiered in Cannes, I, we got like a crazy, like 10 minute standing ovation. Like that's like a dream. You know yeah, I mean? like, you had the Cannes moment. Amazing. Being in Cannes was like, so, like a, like literally like the realization of a dream. When I, I remember when we walked up the red, carpet um of the palais just almost being in tears because just the idea that dard has walked up steps course you know, these people that i studied in film school have walked up these same steps it was literally just like such a crazy moment for me so you know i, I my dream was just to like keep doing shit and, you know keep making i'm working on a a movie thing right now on a tv thing and you know just sort of keep Keep doing it till, till I'm done. <laughs> now, you're sitting next to a giant, um, it's not a smiley face, it's like a straight face, but it's from one of your movies. I, re- I recognize it. Oh, well, yeah, you, sh- you should recognize it. This is a, a, an artifact in one of my movies. Yeah, no. but, but I'm blanking on which one. I'm put, not it, sh- put it to the audience going, if someone could name, it's a smiley face with a straight, with a straight line. line across. Yeah. yeah. It's actually, it is from one of the movies. I want to say totally fucked up, but I might be wrong. Not totally fucked up. It's for, it's from nowhere. Nowhere. Okay. All right. Yeah. And it was a it was a piece of um, set dressing that I took. Yeah. Hung up on. You just happened to it just happened to end up in your car, but it's giant and it's very cool, very striking, very fun. 
Um, I love it. Where is now Apocalypse at? Because I heard of it and then I sort of missed it. With all the streaming shows, sometimes you miss. <laughs> You're not the only one. I know. I'm like, I feel bad because I like your work it's so much. Stars, which yeah, um, which is a, um, like the stars at the time. I mean, it's it, like um, it, it 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 yeah. So I think it's still on Stars actually. Right. And so to get it, you have to. I think you can buy it for like two dollars an episode or something on Amazon. All right. It's on. It's it's hard because I remember when we pitched the show at Stars, um, the head of the network at that time was Chris Albrecht, right on, and he's a super legendary figure in the world of premium TV. Like he was basically invented HBO. Like he was there for Sopranos and Sex and the City. Like all, like he's the one. And then he, you know, had a sort of scandal and like le- like left and um, it sort of was at stars. And I remember me and Carly, the the um, my co-writer on the show, we because it, it's a very like millennial, like all the characters are twenty five, and there's yeah. you know the, there's a queer lead character and the and uh, it's very it's very Greg Rocky right. <laughs> and. Um, and I remember we were talking to the uh, in the pitch, going, "I don't really know if Stars is the home for us because it's like you know, it's it's mainly known for Outlander and um, what's the show? I get <laughs> it's Power, like that. Oh that, yeah, yeah, that, Power, yeah. Those are their two shows, and yeah. so everything else is like basically those are the two. So people who watch those shows have stars, nobody else. Right. And I'm like, I don't really know if this is the, our audience because it seems a little bit older than you know, skews a different different than us. And he said, No, 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 don't worry. This is why we want the show because we want a new demographic. We want a younger demographic, a hipper demographic. To right. This. And so they were also, you know, at that time they had that show Vita and Sweet yeah. Bitter. You know, they're trying to branch out. Sure. Um, so we do now Apocalypse, it's a fucking amazing experience. You know, so Steve Soderbergh's one of our executive producers. Amazing. Along, along with um along with uh Greg Jacobs, his his sort of producing partner. And um and so we have a it's an amazing uh, experience to make the show. It creatively it's everything I've ever wanted, it's just the crazy show ever. I mean I remember one of the producers seeing a couple of different going, this is the most insane thing that's ever been on TV. Oh, I love that. I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to go so, binge it this weekend. You have to, you def, it's 10 episodes to yeah. half an hour and it's so long and cool. And the cast is, but talk about hot. The cast is so hot. It's like Evan Joe is the lead character. Tyler Posey from Teen Wolf's in it. Um, Kelly Bergland is the female lead. Roxanne Mosquito from Kaboom is in it. And Bill Murchoff from, um, from the hunk from Awkward, he's in it as well. And the, it, it, anyway, it's very sexy and very cool. But so we make the show, and then um, they actually are super excited about it. They have us write season two, and we're all gung ho. Yes. And then the head of the network gets fired, and uh, there's all this shit going on. Oh, politics. It stars gets bought by the Neo, you know, and, and it's just Hollywood. Yeah. But it's because in season we wrote in season two, what the one of the characters writes a TV pilot, and she goes through this whole rigmarole with the TV executive. Da, 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 da. And literally in episode nine of the second season, 
the TV executive is fired and her pilot gets put into turnaround. Like literally this, that we predicted what was going to happen. So anyway, it lost for short that there was an executive change and, you know, the new people, the new guy particularly did not get the show at all. And it, was, it didn't work out, but the show itself is, I, it's one that it's the best thing I've ever fucking done. I'm so happy you had to, got to do that experience that you had the experience. Yeah, of like, yeah, living I, that dream. I said it was yeah. my dream yeah. to, to make a show and it was completely my dream show. Like it wasn't like, Oh, you've got to do this or tone this down or make this, you know, make this, yeah. make it great or make more of this or that. I mean, one of the funny things about the, the pitch meeting was when Carly Stortino, my co-guard and I were pitching it you know, I, I'm used to telling like executive people, sort of, you know, industry people, like, don't worry, you know, the script's crazy, I know, but we'll tone it down. It'll be R-rated, you know, it'll, we'll, we'll, it won't be too, too nuts. And the executives turned to us and they're like, no, we want more crazy. We want more sex. We want more crazy. You know, make right. it crazier. You know, I mean, like, they're, like they're like bring it on, and I was like, wow, okay, this is like the this is like the home for me. So yeah. we did, and it was yeah, pretty nuts. It was everything. Um, you write a lot for young people. You tell a lot of young people stories. What is that about? What is it about that time in someone's life that resonates for you? Well, my thing about it, I remember particularly for the Teen Apocalypse trilogy, talking about it. It's like when you're a teenager, it's like everything is life or death. You know, I mean, the stakes are so, it, because you're full of hormones. You know? right. So everything becomes so catastrophic, so apocalyptic. And every relationship, every crush you have, every girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, every time you have sex, it's just sort of like world changing. Right. You know? As you get older, I mean, this is for me. And, you know, it's, it, it, for me, the older I get, the more comfortable I get, the more secure I get, the more comfortable in my skin. You know, it's just sort of like every time, like I'm in my early 60s now, and it's like every time, like you turn 30, you turn 40, you turn 50, it's like you figure more shit out. Right. You, know? and you figure your shit out, or you don't in your head or something, right. you know. And um, so, you know, in terms of where I am right now, I'm like happier than I've ever been in my life. You know what I mean? And in such a great place, but, you know, as a, in terms of, as a character in a movie, I would be the most boring character you could right. ever met. You know what I mean? Like literally, we go to Trader Joe's and buy groceries. Like that's what the you know what? Of the- Trader Joe's can be pretty exciting, and also the parking <laughs> lot can be a uh, bloodbath. Yeah, like, it can get ugly. Yeah, yeah, a lot of drama going on yeah. there. But so that's why you know. And for now, Apocalypse, we we chose to put the char- make the characters yeah. sort of yeah. in the twenties, the sense that they're still figuring their shit out. You know what I mean? Like you're still trying to figure it out. Like you don't have it figured out yet. Yeah. And Dramatically, that's like so much more interesting. Yeah, I noticed something about the sex scenes in Doom Generation. A lot of them are shot pretty close, so you're mostly on the actors' faces, and I think yeah. that's smart because you get to see what it means to them. You get to see the actors, but also you're not dealing with what are we showing? Is it not nudity, or can I see the boobs or the dick or whatever? Uh, like you kind of take that stuff off the table, and you're uh-huh. just focusing on what they're experiencing in a way. Can you talk uh-huh. about that approach? Yeah, I mean, what's, one of the things about my movies is that I've always been super interested and intrigued by sex and sexuality. That's one of the, I think it's also the time I sort of grew up in terms yeah. of 
as a filmmaker, you know, it's like all those, like those early Amadovar movies and like that movie, My Beautiful on the Red, and, you know, just R-rated movies in general and the sex scenes in those movies. It always, it's like, it, to me, the issue is that when you're having sex with somebody, there's a, you're, you're so naked, like physically naked, but emotionally naked as well. And yeah. like, psychically naked and the analogy i use is somebody that you've had a one night stand with they know you in a way that your best friend in the world doesn't know you yeah. you know what i mean they've seen a side and that and as a filmmaker that's fascinating to me those are the moments of the character that i they're who they really are yeah that's what that's what I'm really interested in. And that's why all my movies have always had that aspect of those moments. Because I do, I feel like everybody has kind of their public persona, like who they put on for the world. Like when you walk through the world or when I'm doing an interview or when I go to Starbucks or, you know, I mean, like that's yeah. put that on for the world. But when you're having sex with them, it's all stripped away. You know what I mean? Like naked. And also you're really at your core. And those, and that's kind of why I'm, my movies always have those scenes and those moments. And I'm so, you know, happy about like, like porn because it's like the interest for me in sex and movies isn't pornographic. It's not meant to be titillating because if you want to watch porn, just watch fucking porn. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's so easy. It's so available. It's like, it's not really about titillation. It's about those moments of illumination and those moments of insight. And when you really see who those characters are. And, and that's one of the things about Doom Generation. I think it's like, it's, and the performances of all the actors is they're really in those moments. I think that's one reason why the movies live so long is because the, the characters are so indelible because you basically slept with them all, you know? Yeah, we did <laughs> so in you, a way. Yeah, so you see them in a way that is, you know, very intimate and very personal. What have you learned about directing actors in those scenes, about getting to that place where they're showing the character? How do you it's talk really, about it? it? You know, it's always, for me, acting or, you know, directing actors is always, you know, the cliche is it's like 99% casting. And it is. It's just like you've got to find those actors. I think that's why casting is such an involved process for me and why it takes so long because yeah. it's like you've got to find the actors that are willing to go on the adventure with you and they trust you and they're there. You know, they're there. And that's the cool thing about doing indie movies and cool for me, but not cool for the actors. This is, there's no, you know, the money's shit. <laughs> I mean, right. So they're not, they're not there for the paycheck. They're there for the experience and for the art of it. You know, they're there because they want to be this character and they want to go there. You know, right. it's like saying about Jonathan, he just fucking was all in, you know? And, and, you know, when you do movies that are like, oh yeah, giant budget studio thing, it's like, oh yeah, this script sucks, but you know, here's a paycheck. For yeah. <laughs> I want to buy a boat, so that'll do yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I got to do it. All right. Yeah, so. I have some random movie questions I'm going to throw at you really okay. fast. What was the first so, movie you saw in a theater? Jeez. I don't know if it's the first one, but um, I saw 2001 when I was a kid. Early? Baffled me. Like, ba I remember seeing it at cine like, literally at the, cine at the local theater and just being baffled, but intrigued. And obviously I remembered huge yeah. parts of it. Yeah. Um, what movie have you seen the most times? That's not my own? Yeah. 
I mean, I see my own movies a billion times when I'm editing them and stuff. The movie I've seen the most times, that's a tough one. I, I'm, one, I'm a person that doesn't, like, go back and watch yeah. movies over and over and over again. Like, I kind of, especially because I've seen so many movies. Sure. Like, Breathless. Yeah. Right say that. Right. I've seen it in several classes, yeah. so. What movie costume do you wish you owned so you could wear it around the house? We'll sing, say, we'll sing X's belt from Doom. It's the best belt. And also it's that cowboy belt. shirt and the way it hangs open. His body was the perfect amount of toned. It wasn't like Jimmy, but it was like Jim, G-Y-M-E. It was the best. It was the best. Yeah. Um, okay, here's a random uh, movie question. Uh, say, say you're single. You meet the love of your life at a revival house. What movie's showing? Maybe it's one of yours. Uh, I'll just, I guess we're on a, I guess I'll say, I guess I'll say Beautiful Laundrette. Right on. I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's actually a line. Come to think of it, the reason I said that is because that's a line from Totally Fucked Up. There's yeah. like, he had a screening of my Beautiful Laundrette. Oh, really? Perfect. See, we tied it all together psychically. Yeah. Um, I want to give a shout out for maybe being the only movie that mentioned the Richard Gere gerbil joke. Um, which was a very specific moment in the 90s. Very of the 90s, yeah. Doom Generation, I was like, boom. And then the other line that was very much of its moment, do you like slam dancing? That's my uh, <laughs> the best. The best. I once went to a Halloween party as, I guess I was Richard Gere because I had a hospital gown on and um, a habit trail. I must have gone and bought a habit trail coming out of the back. I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it. I love Richard Gere. I know it was baloney. But was it though? Everybody was, seemed to know somebody that was there that night. And it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, there's rumors about everybody like that, like Will Smith and all of them. You know what I mean? It's it's like, crazy. Oh, yeah. Um, what do you think of this moment in the business? I know there's a lot going on, but do you have any thoughts about it? Like in some ways it's there seems like there's more going on, but then cinemas are different and tent, it's all tent poles. Or, like what do you think of this moment? Yeah, it's it's exciting. It's cool. I mean, I had a TV show on the air like in, yeah. in twenty fifteen, so that's fucking shocking. If you if you think about the Doom Generation and think about one day that guy's gonna have a show on on a cable network, a premium cable network, it probably was it in, unimaginable back then. But it is just it's crazy. No one knows what's going on. It's just a little bit chaotic, a little bit scary, but exciting too. You know, because kind of anything can happen. Yeah. And I think that it's cool, again, about taking back the new generation. It's like that the cinemas are changing, people going to movies is changing. It's like that's kind of what opens it up for something like Doom Generation to play in a theater. It's just like that experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a, like a movie that should be seen in a theater. Yeah. You know, and, and as opposed to like on my phone or on my iPad or, you know. Yeah. I, I, I'm definitely looking forward to going to see it in a, in a, in a theater, maybe at one of the screenings. You're, you're going to be at a few screenings doing Q and A's. Oh my goddamn screenings! It's crazy. The movie is playing on so in so many cities. It's nuts, and they're adding more like every day. But um, but yeah, it's playing kind of all over, and it's actually playing in more cities now than it did in 1995. That's so really heartening to think about. I find that really yeah, that's that what makes I mean. me feel it's, good. It's, it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah. I mean, it's weird that, you know, 
I mean, it's just, and this is just an example of how weird everything is right now. It's just like, yeah. And no, and it's like selling out, like, like a bunch of the screenings are already sold out. And it's just like, I, and I said to Marcus, I'm all, how is that possible? Like there, we haven't really done any press yet. And I don't even know how people are finding out about it. And it's like, I don't know, TikTok or that. <laughs> I love you it. You know, it's like all kind of crazy shit that I'm all yeah. like, I didn't even understand. Like, I like podcasting. Like, I don't even understand podcasting. Yeah. It's, it's like, I told Marcus, like in the old days, like, okay, you had an interview with the Village Voice and right. now like, and this and this and this. And it's just like, it's like, it's like, it's like a whole crazy new world that is nuts and crazy, but exciting. Yeah, and and you're finding a place in it, which I love. I'm, I think that's awesome. Um, you said the website is strandreleasing. Strandreleasing dot com. Yeah, and if you go, there's a th- page that's like the doom slash the doom generation. Perfect. I have a. I don't have a Facebook page personally, but I have one for my company, Desk Pictures, and I just put a link on my Facebook page to the strand thing, and it has. If you click on screenings, it'll say every city it's coming oh, to. Oh, I love that. And what, and, what did you say the name of your company is? It's Desperate Pictures. Desperate is, Pictures. That's the name. It's, the, it's ever since I, all my movies have that company uh, attached to so. why, why did you call it Desperate? It's all punk. It's the, there's a, when I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara, um, that song Desperate by X yep. was one of my theme songs. And I, when I'm, came up with my production company way back when I was making student films in Santa Barbara. It's like desperate pictures. Do you want to hear a random story about X I'm going to share with you? X, um, I, I fucking love stories about X. Well, I don't know them super well, right? I'm not, I don't know. I, don't I, I sat next yeah. to Erxine Stavanka, though, at a, some sort of awards right. thing once. I mean, I, I didn't talk to her, but I was like, oh, holy shit, it's Erxine Stavanka. In 1997, I interviewed Vigo Mortensen for Movie Line, and he had been with Exine, right? Yeah, and they, I think they, they may have, they were married or I don't, I, they may they not have, have I think they, they have a kid for sure. And they may not have been a couple anymore, but I expressed some interest in, uh, and I said, oh, I, I, I haven't heard much of their music. Anyway, like I get a box of X CDs from him in the mail a few days later. For a while, That's he awesome. was sending me stuff in the mail. Like every day I would get something from Vigo Mortensen. Did I miss my window? I don't know. I, I feel like. We had something, Vigo and I, and I don't know what happened. But that's my, whenever I think of X, I think of the time that Vigo and I were um, pen pals slash lovers. Um, okay. That's, that's, that's awesome. I have two more yeah. questions for you. Um, I have one more X thing, though. Like, oh, yeah. X was seminal to me, and I saw them at the Whiskey. Right on. 1980 is before I started U- UC- USC film school. And it was, uh, I want to say it's the punk rock show that changed my life because I was so just blown away by this fucking show. And it was like, it, I, like it, I'll never forget it. It was just one of the, when I was, as a young, you know, like a young college kid, just, you know, want to be a filmmaker, want to be yeah. all this so we're just seeing the show. And that's, again, those are the things that changed me and those are the things that made me who I am. You seem like a really great example of how film school really can can be the thing, right? Because because you went to film school and then you ended up doing it. Like you know what I mean? Like yeah, I'm a total film school. I'm a total film school, uh, you know, brat in the sense that, and it's weird because 
when we went to film school and I went to UC Santa Barbara for undergraduate and did film studies and film history, film criticism and saw all the master directors like Hickok, Hawks, John Ford, all that stuff. And then went to USC film school and got my MFA in production. And when we were doing it, you know, we just, we all loved cinema so much. We all loved directors and, you know, all, all of that stuff. And it seemed like it would always be like that. And then it, it's film school today is different. I think it's right. not like, you know, my generation of like Alison Anders and, you know, Augustine Sands a little bit before us, but you know, Rick Linkletter and Quentin in a way, even though Quentin and Rick didn't really go to proper film school, they, we were all these kind of films, this film school generation and right. we all kind of make movies. And it, it was a, exact point in time like it was our generation right but the generation after that is not like that it's a different it's not the same yeah <laughs> like all had the directors like the five directors that all everyone in films below kubrick coplas versace and somebody stuff. And like there, there, there's a like vendors i know was a big like there was this this core and Godot was a big hit a big one for, and I know for me and Quentin, like letter all of us. And um, yeah, it changed. It's different. It's different now. Um, Here's my final, and now here's my final two questions. Um, I imagine your films are kind of like your children. What is it about Doom Generation? I don't have have real kids. I have dogs, but I have movies. Yeah. And I have yeah, movies and my dogs. Yeah, so so if that's true, if, if if your movies are like your offspring, what is it about the Doom Generation that's a special that's special about it? It's like the it's like the brattiest. <laughs> it's the brattiest kid. It's your brattiest kid. Brattiest kid that conquered the world. I didn't know. It's just really. I, yeah, I mean, all of them, it is true that all of my movies are like my kids, and you know, it, they're very much like kids in the sense that. You like love them and nurture them, and you know, and they ha- always have a place in your heart, right? You and know? they drive you crazy, and they drive you crazy. But you know, at a certain point, you just let them go. They have to let go off. Into <laughs> you have the to world. let them go. You have to let, you them, let go. them go. Yeah. You know, and it's and, and you just sort of sit back and watch and go, wow. Well, yeah. Didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah. And all these are that way, but particularly Doom Generation and. And nowhere too. It's just sort of like they live for this long. Yeah, you know. So you, but there's not a lot of movies from 1995 that ta- people are talking about or give yeah. a shit about. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's what's so crazy to me. Yeah. It's like it's playing in a fucking theater, like all over the fucking country. Yeah, and you're getting another you're getting another chance with it, I guess, as a parent or whatever, in a way. Um, yeah, and also the idea for a new audience too to yeah. see it is. Super cool. Really cool. I wonder what they'll scream and groan at or clap at. It'll be interesting. Have you, you've seen it with an audience, so at Sundance, right? Yeah, no, that was the Sundance screening was fucking um, incredible. And I specifically asked the audience before it started, I said, how many people in this theater? Because the Egyptian was packed. Right. It pulled out. And I said, how many people in this audience have never seen the movie before? And 80% of the audience raised their hand. I was wow. like, oh. I was like, uh oh. <laughs> You guys are in for a fucking a surprise. I hope. It's, and so, um, and you know, it was a lot of young people, a lot of 
you know, people hadn't seen the movie, and it was like they loved it. And yeah. it was, you know, several came up to me afterwards, and it was so. That's what's super exciting about the movie. It's that uh, the Doom Generation and Nowhere both have a very weird, intense following amongst young people. Uh, the Acad- we're doing a screening at the Academy. Um, later this year, and the academy has some sort of teen outreach program, oh, like a kitty or something, to like sort of like try, I guess, make movies relevant for teenagers who don't watch movies anymore. And Doom Generation and Nowhere are like number one and two on the list. Like they're somehow so aware of this move, these movies, because I think they have such a cult reputation, and because they're on like TikTok or. Um, Pinterest, or you know, I mean, like what, whatever it is that kids are looking at today, yeah. on it, and and so there's a real fascination with the movies, yeah. and you know, I think that you know the movie definitely holds up, and is a, still as wild a ride as it was back in the nineties. Yeah, so. and in some ways, I think it speaks even more to the kids of today dealing with violence and and sex and like all the all the. And the, and, the, and the climate and all of the, the doom of it all. Um, here's my final question, Greg. First of all, I love this conversation. Thank you for doing it. And congrats on uh, the re-release of this movie. Um, final question. Why do you make movies? Why do I make movies? Somebody earlier today was talking about that they saw Doom Generation like when they were too young. They were like 13, 14 or something. And they were so um, moved by it. And you know, that this is a, it's, it's interesting because it's a, it was a straight white guy and, you know, straight white cis guy, the, that the dying breed. Right. And, and, and he was just saying that, you know, he's all, it shaped, you know, that movie shaped me. You know what I mean? Like it really profoundly changed my worldview. You know, it, I think I'm, you know, more accepting, more, more, you know, whatever, liberal, more, right. you know, tolerant of like, trans people are yeah, yeah people people and different lifestyles and also you know i like you know got into alternative music and you know it just changed me as a person culturally you yeah. know i mean as opposed to if i hadn't seen the movie i might have been a completely different person interesting as a filmmaker there's nothing there's no higher compliment you yeah. can receive you know, i mean the idea that you actually were really meaningful to someone. Like a film you made really has meaning to people, and that it really is, you know, it matters. Even you know, to, I, yeah, I'm never, I'm not the type of person that's like ever going to win like an Oscar or like make like a giant Marvel movie for like a billion dollars. Right. You know? So it's like the, beyond that, there's nothing that I could ever want beyond beyond that. So. I love it. Well, it's been so fun talking to you. I'm going to come and see one of your uh, in-person screenings and say hello. And uh, enjoy this this uh, re-release. It's going to be fun. I, I love that people are going to I'm be already, I'm already enjoying it, despite Marcus, you know, like being a slave driver. <laughs> Marcus is the, is the uh, distributor and uh, who arranged this interview, uh, FYI. All right. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Okay. See you later. Thanks again to Greg Araki. Go see The Doom Generation when it comes back to theaters. And you can learn about that release at strandreleasing.com. And then click on Doom Generation, and it'll have the info there. It's also coming to DVD and Blu-ray uh, after that. So check it out. All right. So this happened. Uh, I went to this cool musical 
in Los Angeles called The Lonely Few. It's at the Geffen Playhouse, but in the smaller space there. So it's not as big as the, the big room. And it's a story about two women who fall in love and they're in the country music scene. Uh, it's set in rural Kentucky and they find each other and they're singer-songwriters and uh, love blossoms. But it's really about uh, the, the whole group of people. There are like six or seven characters and I was so moved by it. I just loved it. And all of the actors are playing the instruments themselves. So you're watching like a concert uh, with these actors and then they put down the guitar and then they play this incredibly dramatic scene. Um, at, at, at intermission, I said to my friend um, Bill, who had taken me, I was like, this is really good. Everyone's so talented. And at the end of the show, I couldn't even talk to him because I'd been crying. Like, I just was so moved by it. It was really beautiful. So uh, if you're a fan of musicals and that's not on your radar uh, and you're in L.A., check it out. I was super into it, The Lonely Few. And, of course, I did a deep dive in the cast and stuff after after it was over. Um Lauren Patton, who plays Lila, uh, she won uh, Tony for Jagged Little Pill. Ciara Renee's been on Broadway and a bunch of stuff. Um, just everyone was so good. Damon uh, Dono was nominated for Tony, I think. Um, he's in it. Like, they just all moved me so much. Everybody. And it has two directors, Trip Coleman and Eleanor Scott. And I was doing a deep dive in the program, and I saw that Eleanor used to be on my favorite show, So You Think You Can Dance, like season six. And now she's like this big choreographer. And of course, I did a went into a like a Instagram hole with her. She's like crushing it on Broadway, choreographing um, Funny Girl and Mr. Saturday Night. And like, she's still young and fierce and worked on this show too. So I don't know. I love it when my S-Y-T-Y-C-D people, I, that should have rolled off my tongue quicker than it did. Anyway, I love that show. And I love when those kids go on and crush it. So if you're in LA, go see The Lonely View. All right, that's enough for this week. Uh, thank you to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.